Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. This podcast features scene-by-scene analysis of the movies from the DC Films division of Warner Brothers Pictures. This episode covers scene 26 from Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, which is Perry White and Clark Kent in the Daily Planet offices. It is the 1938 dialogue. And the analysis here is by myself and Alessandro Maniscalco. Also, at the end of this episode, we are going to give our responses to some of the major overall criticisms that we've seen of Batman v Superman. But first, let's go through scene 26. The last time we saw Clark Kent, he was covering the Metropolis Library fundraiser at Lex's house. And before that, we saw in the Daily Planet pitch meeting that Clark actually wanted to be covering the Gotham Bat and the rumors about his becoming much more brutal and uncaring about actually fighting crime. In Lex's party scene, Clark leveled three criticisms against Batman. That Batman is trampling on civil liberties, that innocent people are afraid, and that Batman thinks he's above the law. We also know that Clark is basically right, because we have not really seen Bruce being a hero since he saved that little girl in the Battle of Metropolis. Since then, he's turned away from his normal hero operations toward his singular focus on taking down Superman. Even when Batman saved the people being trafficked in Scene 7, that was just an afterthought. So Batman's cruel turn is a big story, and it's especially important to Clark because Clark is getting increased scrutiny for doing heroic things as Superman. Yet Batman is getting off the hook for doing cruel and violent things. In the ultimate cut of BVS, it looks as though we are going to get at least one additional scene of Clark carrying out his investigative reporting in Gotham City. And we're pretty sure that the new footage will take place before this scene 26, because it's probably how Clark gathered enough information to write the copy. Perry White starts scene 26 by including a quick product placement as he says he logged into Dropbox to check Clark's copy. Overall, there seemed to be much less noticeable product placement in this movie compared to Man of Steel, and compared to other big blockbusters. And I don't mind this particular product placement because I know myself and many others actually do use Dropbox like this, to share documents with one another. It seems pretty realistic, and it shows the Daily Planet operating in a modern context. Anyway, Perry says that he did find copy, but he's frustrated because Clark's writing not about the Gotham Metropolis football game, or the Friends of Metropolis Library, as he had been assigned to in previous scenes. Instead, Clark has written about the goddamned Gotham bat thing. The phrasing here again touches on the heaven and hell theme that has been ever-present in this movie. And we see again that Perry does not support covering the Batman story. In scene 15, I talked about how Perry cited the death of the American conscience, and he was basically saying that 21st century morality is in line with Batman's conduct. We are accepting of vengeance and vigilantism, especially if it's confined to the lower echelons of society, and we are very comfortable with moral gray areas, almost to the point where there's no real rights and wrongs at all. Clark, on the other hand, is still holding to the more traditional notions of moral purity, and that conviction is represented in his desire to cover the story of Batman taking the law into his own hands. In response to Perry, Clark says that, If the police won't help, the press has to do the right thing. This is another example of Clark holding on to tradition. In the past, the media played an important role as a check and balance on forces of power in society. Now the media is just more of an echo chamber, and their primary concern is views or clicks, not societal responsibilities. It will also be interesting to see if there is something in the ultimate cut about the police explicitly not helping Clark in going after Batman. So Clark says that the press has to do the right thing, and Perry challenges the entire idea that there is a right thing at all. 
Perry says, you don't get to decide what the right thing is. This touches on one of the major ideas of the movie. What is right and wrong? Is it a matter of perspective, such as Bruce seeing Clark's perspective or Clark seeing Bruce's? Is it a conversation, like Senator Finch says it is? Perry is telling Clark that Clark doesn't get to decide what the right thing is, but this also speaks to Superman and the struggle Superman is facing. Can Superman be trusted to decide what the right thing is? Because Superman has so much power that he is implicitly saying with each of his actions that that was the most right thing he could have done. This dilemma may be made even clearer with the deleted scene of the woman asking Superman how he chooses who lives and who dies. So Perry has shot down the idea of Clark as an individual deciding what the right thing is. But Clark stands his ground and appeals to an institution that can hold up what is right. Clark says, When the planet was founded, it stood for something, Perry. This something probably refers to both standing up for the people and also standing against those with power who are abusing it. This is what is commonly referred to as the press being the fourth estate in society. The first three estates can be thought of as the three branches of government in the U.S., or the original use was closer to the idea of the three estates as the church, the wealthy class, and the working class. Interestingly, the first known use of the phrase, the fourth estate, was in a book called On Heroes and Hero Worship by Thomas Carlyle back in, I think, 18th century England. In BVS, with Superman's arrival, it has upset the balance of the three primary estates, and now there is the question of what role the fourth estate should play in the new society. Clark is taking the stand that the press should not just go along with the whims or the hot stories of the day, and we might add that it also shouldn't allow itself to be used as a pawn by the likes of Lex Luthor. But instead, Clark is saying that the paper should hold to traditional principles. It's also important to note the specific words that Terrio chose for Clark's line here. The planet stood for something. We just recently heard Lex tell Wallace that he wanted to help him stand for something. So as an audience, we are clued in to track what the different characters are going to stand for as we move into the next segment of the movie. Wallace is going to seem like he's standing for accountability, but he's really being used. Whereas Clark wants the planet to stand for the right thing and the undefended, rather than being used as a pawn by going along with and amplifying the passions and whims of society. But Perry responds with a dose of reality, coming from the fact that BVS is set in a very realistic world, which means Perry is not just talking about the in-movie world, he's talking about our real world. He says that Clark and the planet could stand for something too if it was 1938. But it's not 1938. WP ain't hiring no more. Apples don't cost a nickel. Not in here, not out there. So presumably 1938 was the year that the Daily Planet was founded, which is why Perry used that particular date to contrast how things have changed. This also happens to be a nice little commentary on the Superman mythology overall because 1938 was the year that Superman first appeared, which was in Action Comics number one. So Perry is telling Clark that his way of thinking is naive and outdated, but he's simultaneously making a meta-commentary on the character of Superman, and saying that things are very different now than they were when Superman was first introduced. So it would be silly to think that Superman can hold to the same values and operate in the same way now as he did back in 1938 when he was introduced. 
This is a signal to the audience that we shouldn't expect the George Reeves or the Christopher Reeve versions of Superman, because those were from a very different era. And if we're going to take Superman seriously and put him in a realistic world, then we have to be prepared for what that means. Now, even though Perry White is right that it's not 1938 anymore, it doesn't mean that he's right that Superman and Clark Kent have to give up on pursuing truth and justice. What we will find out by the end of Superman's character arc in BVS is that Perry is actually wrong. It does matter, now more than ever, that we have Clark and Superman as a beacon of hope and purity amidst all the mess and madness that is present-day society. The ultimate point that the filmmakers drive home is that Superman is going to have to put up with more crap here in our modern world, but that he will ultimately stand firm through it all and make the sacrifice that inspires everyone else to rise up, to get better, and stand together, like Bruce talks about in his closing monologue. We will get to more of this culmination of Superman's character arc in later scenes, but if you want to read it right now, there is a great article by Mark Hughes called Zack Snyder Loves Superman and Batman v Superman Proves It. And Mark Hughes makes a great case for why Perry and others who try to disregard Superman are portrayed as being wrong by the filmmakers. Yet, unfortunately, some critics of BVS only read these things on the surface level and thought that the filmmakers were making the exact opposite point. They were thinking that the filmmakers agreed with Perry, when really they were using Perry to show what the situation was for Superman and what it means for Superman to make it through those dilemmas. But back to Perry's specific line, the WPA refers to the New Deal program called the Works Progress Administration, which put unemployed people back to work during the Great Depression. So Perry is pointing out that we are no longer under the New Deal, and the situation is different for the poor of Metropolis and Gotham now. He also talks about the price of an apple, which highlights again how different the time periods are and contrasts with the mention at the beginning of the scene about Dropbox, a technology that would have been unfathomable in 1938. But Perry's line overall is also a nice touch to give us an illustration of how long the character of Superman has been around and been relevant to popular culture. When Perry says, not in here, not out there, he's also kind of breaking the fourth wall by alluding to the world in the movie, but also the world out there, that is, our real world outside the movie. One can interpret him as saying that the plight being depicted in the movie, of Superman getting judged and causing controversy just for trying to do the right thing, of raising questions about how someone should carry out justice in their own hands or whether they should at all, of the world and its cynicism, are also meant to be critiques raised about our real world. Perry then finishes... You drop this thing. Nobody cares about Clark Kent taking on the Batman. This, of course, is some dramatic irony because we, the audience, do care about the Superman and Batman conflict. Some of us have been waiting for this for decades. But it's also interesting for a couple of reasons that this is specifically about Clark Kent taking on Batman, not Superman. In the movie, Clark Kent is a fairly insignificant journalist, and Batman is a crime fighter who's been operating for about 20 years. In this sense, Batman is well beyond Clark's level, and it's silly for Clark to try to take him on. Also, as we talked about in previous scenes with Perry, there's a sort of societal endorsement of Batman and his methods, even if they've gotten a bit more brutal recently. Society is okay with a vigilante taking out the criminal class, even if it's in extra-legal ways. And also, society has basically moved beyond the old institutions of newspapers and the media as the fourth estate. So in this way, if media is about social buzz and echo chambers, 
then nobody really cares about an investigative journalist trying to shed light on a Batman character who is getting a little bit out of hand in Gotham's port districts. A final reason that it's important that this is about Clark Kent is that for Clark, he is trying very hard to take down Batman as Clark Kent through his official avenues as a journalist and thus through the approved channels of checks and balances in society. Clark initially wants to be above board in his takedown of Batman. But as we see later, he eventually gives up on this official route and, after some further prodding by Lex, takes up the cause as Superman. This desire to operate as Clark Kent rather than Superman is the inverse of what Bruce Wayne is going through in wanting to take down Superman. As we explained in multiple scenes before, Bruce very much needs it to be Batman who takes down Superman, not Bruce Wayne taking down Superman. Because for Bruce, it's not really about removing the threat of Superman, that's just his rationalization. It's actually about proving that Batman can do it, and that his efforts as Batman haven't all just been a lie carried out by someone who is damaged and unable to get over his feelings of powerlessness. Speaking of powerlessness, it amazes us how tightly woven this movie is with all the main characters dealing with feelings of powerlessness. Here, Clark feels powerless to cover the story he wants, and powerless to confront an injustice that he sees in Batman. Of course, we've talked many times about Bruce and Lex, both feeling powerless relative to Superman, and going down a negative path because they are no longer the top dogs that they were used to being. Out of Bruce and Lex, one is able to pull himself out of that dark path, while the other basically goes all the way off the edge. Also, Lois is dealing with feeling powerless to protect Clark from the slings and arrows that society is throwing at him, and powerless to protect Clark from his own sadness at these reactions and repercussions. For her, she finds out by the end that her love of Clark and Superman together actually was very powerful for Clark in giving him the courage to go forward, and she learns exactly how much that did mean to him in the heartbreaking scene at the end with the engagement ring. Even more, we have Alfred who is powerless to get through to Bruce to save him from his destructive path. Even though Alfred can see where it's headed, he can't reach Bruce, and he also respects Bruce too much as a grown man to actually stop him from carrying it out. So it's amazing to watch this movie weave together all the character arcs in such a coherent way. Though, yeah, powerlessness is not exactly a fun or funny theme, so it's not always a barrel of laughs as they do this. And that leads to ideas about some of the things this movie has been criticized for, and we're going to touch on some of those critiques later um, before the end of the episode. But before that, one more thing about scene 26. We had Henry Cavill again performing as Clark Kent in The Daily Planet. Obviously, he is not changing his voice or doing a klutz routine to hide his identity. Instead, costume designer Michael Wilkinson said that they focused on giving Clark clothes that were dark and patterned in ways that hid Cavill's physique. I really like the wardrobe they had for Clark, and I think it will be even better to see him out talking to people in Gotham, too. So next up is scene 27, where we hear the first lines from Diana at the museum with Bruce. Because we have a little bit of extra time in this episode, and we think we'll have some extra time the next episode as well, we are going to share some brief responses to a few of the major criticisms that people leveled against Batman v Superman and you are actually going to hear from myself and from Alessandro here. So here are the criticisms which we've pulled and synthesized from the Guru Geek Facebook group and from various YouTube comment sections. The movie had too much going on for one movie. 
And related to that, here's another critique. They rushed it to get the other Justice League members in. Superman is boring. He didn't have a moment to explain his character or answer the people who were protesting him. He didn't have enough lines. And related to that, Superman is less interesting than the stuff going on around him. They didn't show how Lex Luthor found out Bruce Wayne is Batman. Zack Snyder has a good visual style, but he doesn't handle characters or plot very well. Star Wars and other blockbusters have better structure and pacing than BVS, and The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises do better exploring their themes than BVS. BVS is boring and pretentious. Lex Luthor did not act like Lex Luthor. How could a ship's AI grant access to Lex? Superman should have removed the scout ship anyway. Batman and Superman should have explicitly stated their issues with one another. Doomsday should have been given a fuller origin. The movie was not entertaining, and it's the movie's fault if the audience doesn't understand it. Right now we're going to go through the first five or six, and then we'll respond to the rest at the end of our next episode. So first up, some people have just given this vague criticism that the movie is a mess. If you try to get more detail from these people, sometimes they'll say that it had too much packed in to one movie, and maybe it should have been two movies. My response to this is that BVS really does hold together thematically as one movie. For example, the theme of powerlessness runs through literally every major character, like we just said. So it makes sense that they'd be in the movie together. It also goes through a full arc for Clark, Bruce, and Lex, and even Lois, too, where they are dealing with something very important to the core of their character, and they all end up somewhere different than where they started. The characters also work well together. For example, Bruce and Lex are both rich orphans striving to take down Superman, but for different reasons, and they end up in very different places from one another. As we've pointed out in some of our analysis, the scenes are sometimes cut together in non-standard ways, but there is always a thematic or artful reason for doing so, which means just because it is non-standard does not mean that it is bad sequencing. It is the sort of thing, though, that benefits from multiple viewings so that you can better see how it was all put together. But it's definitely one coherent movie, it's just one with a lot of content, and one that doesn't follow some typical formulas. Here's Alessandro. As was explained in earlier episodes, one may view this movie as a mess when not viewed as a five-act revenge tragedy story. However, when viewed as such, it is concise and structured. And every element in this movie has, in one way or another, a contextual relation to the main storyline. One could make a reasonable argument that the movie does too much if it weren't successful in doing so. However, the manner in which it all comes together and has a place in the underlying themes and plot indicate that it was not too much. Had this movie been split into multiple movies, it would have suffered, and many people would have likely complained that they were boring. Okay, a related critique is that the movie rushed into introducing the other Justice League members. They could have taken their time to have one or two standalone movies for each character first, before Justice League. So, first of all, I'd like to point out that this does not actually contain any specific criticism of how the film was made. It's just someone saying that they would have preferred if the universe building had happened in a different way. In that sense, it's just a matter of opinion, and I'm free to say that I really like how BVS stepped forward from Man of Steel and showed how the presence of Superman was now affecting the other key characters who were already around. Batman gives us an experienced and jaded character to contrast with the idyllic and early career Superman, 
And Wonder Woman shows us someone who has been around much, much longer, but who has pulled away from society. Here we see how she's pulled back into action, and we get hints at her backstory, which makes us curious about her backstory that's coming in the Wonder Woman film next year. To me, this is much richer than a little advertisement just tucked into the credits of another movie. Also, as Man of Steel Answers showed in a blog post, Warner Brothers is not rushing to Justice League. They waited almost three years between Man of Steel and BVS. They are going to have four movies before Justice League, and it's going to be four and a half years between Man of Steel and Justice League, where it was only four years between Iron Man and the Avengers. Here's Alessandro with more. There have actually been quite a few people complaining, saying that DC is rushing things and only to try to catch up to Marvel. But frankly, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Marvel's approach to their universe isn't the only way to go about introducing a comic verse into film. We're talking about some of the most famous characters. They don't really need their own introductions. People, for the most part, know who they are. This movie only had one storyline. It contains several characters with their own arcs, but those individual arcs in themselves are not enough to make a full movie. The transitions between scenes were creative, and adjacent scenes had parallels. The scenes may have been perceived as jumping merely because the story switches between so many characters, but in the end they all come together very well. A movie about two of the most famous characters in comic books does not need several movies to build up to this. And the logic behind Batman and Superman not knowing each other is sound because we all know from the comics and cartoons that once they're acquainted, they become friends and they work together for a common good. Now, Dark Knight Returns obviously has them further along in their careers, but then if we were to do that scenario, that would really be rushing things and jumping the gun. Here we're in a situation where we're introducing this universe so it makes sense that they don't know each other, and it gives a plausible reason of why they're fighting, because they don't know their inherent motives. All right, the next criticism is that Superman was boring in BVS. Some people said that he should have had a character growth moment in the Senate when he could explain who he is and why he's here. He needed to have a chance to answer the questions that the world was raising about him. Some people have even said that Superman as a character doesn't get fleshed out in this movie building on Man of Steel. To these people, I just have to say, with all due respect, you're either crazy or you watched a totally different movie from me. This whole podcast is me showing how interesting and inspiring and heartbreaking Superman's character development was in BVS, and I think he has been fleshed out more than I've ever seen in past movies or even in most of the comic books I've read of the character. The Senate scene was a huge character moment for Superman, even though he didn't speak, and I'll definitely be giving my thoughts on that a few episodes down the road when we get there. Here's Alessandro's response. Throughout this film, Superman struggles internally with being who he is to the people of this world and doing what he does. He doesn't like people being unhappy with him when all he is trying to do is good deeds, but at the same time, he doesn't want people to worship him. He questions his place in the world about whether people are right and he shouldn't interfere and if his presence is corrupting people's beliefs given his worshippers. Cavill does a fantastic job of portraying this struggle through his facial gestures and the moments he has with both Martha and Lois. The public has a divided opinion of Superman in this movie. While he does do good things, sometimes those good things result in bad things happening. This is exemplified in the African tragedy, which Lex does use to set him up as a bad guy, 
or at least to make people question his actions. While he didn't do anything bad per se in the African incident, his actions and presence resulted in a reaction and retaliation which resulted in the deaths of many people. The culmination of this struggle is a heartfelt moment where he makes a decision that doing the right thing is who he is and what he does regardless of what the people of the world think or say. But he accepts them for their opinions and embraces this world as his own. Both his acceptance of this world as his own and his newly found conviction to do right no matter the costs lead him to sacrifice himself to save the world. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what the world believes about him, only what he believes about himself. This is his world and he will do everything he can to protect it and the people on it. This is something that he came to grips with throughout both Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. That is the character growth. Speaking to the public and stating his purpose of why he's here is not what would have given him growth, nor would it really matter what he said to the people. In fact, in Secret Origin comic, Lois is asked if Superman said why he is here during their first encounter. And her response was simply, he showed us why. It's his experiences and his connections with others that gave him growth, and which are the ultimate resolution to his sense of detachment and self-doubt. The question of whether or not Superman can be trusted is never an issue. Of all the characters in the movie, Batman is really the only one that doesn't trust Superman. And the resolution to his struggle with his detachment from the world and his self-doubt, experiencing the good in others and the bond he has with the others, essentially finding his humanity, and being confident that doing the right thing is always right, even if it means some won't be happy, or that bad things will happen, essentially standing for what's right. It's also the resolution to Batman's trust issues as he acknowledges and accepts Superman as, as one of us and having a human side. Superman's growth in this film is the growth that we all experience in our lives. Being comfortable in one's own shoes, and with being who we are because that's who we are, and standing up for what we believe in. Superman comes to realize on his own terms what he stands for. As Lois puts it in Superman, Lois and Clark, issue number 8, Integrity, honor, doing the right thing. That's what Superman truly stands for. And it's this realization that allows him to overcome that inner struggle and know that he belongs. And that what he does is right no matter what others perceive. And standing for something is a recurring theme throughout this movie. A related critique that we've seen is that Superman was less interesting in this film than the events and discussions going on around him, and that this shouldn't happen in a movie that is basically a Man of Steel sequel. I do admit that the stuff going on all around Superman is very interesting, and in a way this is definitely a Superman sequel because it's about everyone dealing with the presence of Superman. But I think watching Clark's reactions to all of it, and him ultimately having to make some big decisions within all of it, is really interesting too. I think in the ultimate cut we'll get a few more scenes with Clark and with Superman, but I think it's just going to add detail. I don't think it's going to fundamentally change the arc that Superman is going through. So I think the theatrical cut is very good in this regard, even if the ultimate cut will maybe be even better. Alessandro. The events and discussions going around Superman in this film essentially are Superman. Each and every word spoken about him, both good and bad, are what are echoing in his mind and he is struggling with. This is why we see scenes of him watching the news and discussing what people are saying about him to Martha and Lois. It's about Superman's perception of the world as much as it is the world's perception of him. 
It's this inner struggle that actually makes Superman more interesting in this film. We see Superman facing a battle with his emotions. The movie fully encapsulates this, hence there are no blanks to be filled. Next up, many people complained that the movie never accounted for how Lex Luthor found out that Bruce Wayne was Batman. So this is really just a statement of fact, not a critique. Yes, it didn't show Lex discovering Batman's identity, but people still need to try to argue for why this is a bad thing. I will actually argue that it's a good thing they didn't show Lex finding out. We talked about this a bit recently in Scene 21, but throughout much of the movie, it draws the audience in by having us ask, how much has Lex been behind? Was he behind everything? And now we can add to that questions like, how much does Lex know? Does he know everyone's identities? It makes us very suspicious of Lex, and we keep a close eye on him in every scene, which I think is exactly what the filmmakers want. Also, Lex already knowing that Bruce is Batman ties in directly with the theme of knowledge and power. Lex gets his power from his knowledge, and so that's why he exerts all this energy to keep tabs on the metahumans and to do the research on Kryptonians and the Kryptonite and on everyone's pressure points. By having Lex just already know things, like Batman's and Superman's secret identities, it positions Lex as all-knowing or omniscient, which is the third characteristic of God, the one that is not ascribed to Superman. Superman has omnipotence and benevolence, but Lex is the one with omniscience. That allows us to delve deeper into the ideas of God and man and what it means to be good. Again, here's Alessandro. A movie shouldn't have to hold your hand and explain every detail and why everything is the way it is. Lex is not the protagonist, nor is the focus of the movie about Lex's life and his research into the heroes. It is not necessary to know how Lex discovers Batman's identity in order to tell this story. It's not pertinent to understanding the story. It also doesn't take much effort, given what we know about Lex, to deduce the likely means to which he did discover Batman's identity, given his massive resources and intellect. Okay, the last critique for us today, and then we'll address some more next episode. Many people give credit to Zack Snyder for having a great visual style and directing action really well. But they then say that he doesn't handle characters or plot very well. This is related to the critique that Batman v Superman is not structured as well as, say, Star Wars or other typical blockbusters. They're basically saying that Snyder can do certain scenes well, but he doesn't put them together very well into a whole. Some people recognize that Snyder includes some cerebral ideas in his movies like BVS, but they say that he doesn't do as well with these deeper ideas as, say, Christopher Nolan did with The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises. Here is Alessandro's reaction to these criticisms. Zack Snyder has proven his understanding of the character in his references to the comics not only visually, but by evoking the emotional struggle of the character's personalities through concise storytelling. Each scene is filled with motif, juxtaposition, and layers of meaning. These are all signs of a good director. Star Wars and Batman v Superman are very different types of movies. Star Wars and its type are fast-paced, filled with action and little exploration of characters, focusing more on the events that happen to the characters and because of them. Batman v Superman has exposition about the very essence of heroism and what it means to be a hero or a villain. It is a movie that delves into the psychology of people and the profound effects that tragedy has on people. Batman v Superman is the epitome of a cerebral movie, 
evoking ideas that comprise the very building blocks of today's stories. It touches on the man behind the cape. It is the true voice of Superman, not the strong exterior, all smiles, that the public is shown. One of the main focus points of the movie was Superman figuring out who he is, both as a hero and as an everyday guy, and how each version of him fits into everything else, as he struggles with having his every action as Superman criticized and every attempt at action as Clark thwarted. The pivotal moment in this movie is Superman finding his place in the world, which just so happens to be exactly where he's been the whole time. He just needed to realize that and be comfortable with it, which he finally does. So I will echo Alessandro in saying that I think Snyder handles characters beautifully. I will admit that he doesn't do it in the typical fashion of just giving the characters some character traits that are recognizable and clear, then introducing some sort of inciting incident that the characters have to react to. Instead, Snyder's characters are usually going through something very philosophical or a dilemma that cuts to the core of what their character represents. But they always have a strong character arc that goes throughout the movie, and that is definitely true in BVS. With regard to plot, I agree with Alessandro that BVS is fundamentally different than many of the movies it gets compared to. BVS is not a by-the-book, three-act blockbuster. But that doesn't mean it's bad, just that it's different. I think Snyder and Terrio built some very deep themes into their movie, and the five-act revenge tragedy structure that we've mentioned several times serves those themes better than a three-act hero's journey would have. I also think Snyder and Terrio used themes and motifs effectively to reflect pressing issues in our society, and Superman and Batman were lenses to see ourselves in new ways. Now, if people did not connect with those themes or motifs, or if the underlying ideas were too subtle, that is a fair opinion to hold, and I can't really get into whether it was better or worse than some of Nolan's films, but I can say that Snyder definitely knows what he's doing in this regard. It's not by accident that you end up with all the amazing connections and touches that we've been documenting in this podcast. With that being said, I will mention with regard to plot that many of Snyder's movies are first and foremost about ideas and themes, and the plot is only meant to support and allow for the exploration of the themes. This contrasts with most blockbusters where the plot is the primary concern. In this sense, I would relate Snyder's movies more to works of literature, while most other blockbusters that make in the neighborhood of $900 million are more like popular fiction than literature. In literature, the theme, motif, and character arcs are king, whereas in popular fiction, the plot and the character traits are king. And I think some people are thrown off and they don't expect literature from Snyder because it, they are action movies and they do have a visual style. But as the Snyders themselves said in an interview before, just because it has a visual style doesn't mean you should throw it in and lump it in with a category with all the other visual movies or action movies. All right, we're going to stop there. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate the smart and insightful audience that we have, and we look forward to seeing your comments. Be sure to also check out Man of Steel Answers and the Suicide Squadcast. And if you're on Reddit, you can join me at the DCU Club subreddit.